Chris, thank you very much. I, uh, I was quite taken by your um, topic, lust in the operating room. <laughs> I can hardly wait. <laughs> but uh, tonight we're going to talk about something that we never talk about. Didn't your mother tell you? In polite company, you never talk about religion or politics. Have you ever gone to a gathering where they didn't talk about religion and politics? And I think the bottom line, and those of you who just want to eat and leave, I want to give this to you now so you can't say that you uh, were forced to stay, is that each one of us, as people of faith, are responsible for a well-formed faith life. You and I are responsible for a well-formed faith life. And the reason I say that is if you read my article in the August 1st issue of the Bishop's Bulletin, you know that there have been a number of letters to the editor in a whole variety of uh, newspapers in the state where Catholics have been explaining what it is that the church teaches, or depending on their point of view, what the church shouldn't talk about, or according to their point of view, what the church has no business talking about. And as a result, uh, I felt that it was necessary for me as bishop to talk about some of the flawed thinking when it comes to conscience formation and the responsibility of every Catholic. You know, we have in the United States a separation between church and state. Thomas Jefferson referred to it as a serpentine wall that twists and turns. However, the founders of this country, when they established the separation between church and state, said in the First Amendment that there's a right to establish a church and there's a right to practice the faith. And both of those rights are very, very important. To establish, you have a right if to be a member of the Catholic faith or whatever particular Christian or non-Christian faith you choose to belong to, and under the First Amendment, you have a right to practice those beliefs. It was in light of that that I wrote the article, and I actually focused on two things, sacred scripture and the magisterial teaching of the church. Why is that important? Because each one of us, as Catholics or as Christians, are invited into a wonderful relationship and intimacy, if you will, between ourselves and Jesus Christ. And in that intimacy, which God has given to us, he has also blessed perhaps everyone here, at least some of the people here, with the gift of the Catholic faith. But when I was teaching at the University of St. Thomas before coming to the diocese, now more than 10 years ago, each Friday, all of my students get to invite their boyfriends and girlfriends, they can invite their dorm mate, they can invite anybody they want to, to come to my class and ask any question that they wanted to. And hopefully there'll be an opportunity for that later this evening. And I was amazed how many people form their opinions according to Time Magazine or US News and World Report or here in South Dakota, Kelloland Television, or the famous 
Argus leader. This will come as a shock to somebody, but you can look on the shelves of the Vatican Library and you will not find Kello or the Argus or Time Magazine. If a person is a Catholic and they choose to practice the Catholic faith, and remember, you don't have to, there is an expectation that you will live your faith according to the teachings of the church. Which means that whether you're a priest or a sister or a lay person in the vocation of marriage or a generous single life, you have the responsibility, a moral responsibility, to read what the church teaches. I can't tell you how many people have written to me in the last few weeks, ever since something about a web page appeared in the Argus Leader, who told me what they thought of my opinion. And those that had the courage to sign their letters, and that was the minority, I wrote back to them and talked about my right under the First Amendment to bring my beliefs into the public forum and to share them. As a matter of fact, I told an Argus leader, a reporter, that I had that right to bring my beliefs into the public forum. Interestingly, in an editorial in that same newspaper, they commented that I only had rights as a private individual to say what I wanted to say or not say. And since they considered me a powerful private individual, I did not have a right to say anything. I wonder how still a newspaper reporter would sit for that same opinion if it was given to them. Freedom of the press? Ah, yes. That's a sacred right that we have in this country. But in addition to that, freedom of religion to establish and to exercise. And so when we follow Jesus Christ, we have the responsibility to know all that his teachings mean in our Catholic faith. And we are held accountable for that. For just a simple reading of the scripture teaches us that God is not indifferent. You know, there are some people who go to funerals and perhaps have gone to too many and there's hardly a priest in this diocese who will say anything bad about a person at a funeral. I mean, why kick somebody when they're down? <laughs> and most sermons, I'm told that the priest says at the end, and I'm sure that Mildred or Mary or Tom or George are in heaven. Well, as good as that sounds in every sermon, that's only a wish. Because each one of us, someday, will be called before the Lord to make an accounting for our lives. And I believe that one of the serious accounts that we will have to render is what we did, first to know, then to live, and then to share the teachings of the church. There are those people who believe that at conception, a baby is a human being. There are even politicians in the state of Iowa who said that that at conception, a baby is a baby. That means that it's a human being. In Psalm 139, we learn that that child is knit in its mother's womb. We know that before that child is born, that that child has been created by Almighty God in God's image. And we know that to take the life of any human being is a serious sin and a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. 
especially if you believe that at conception, that's a baby. Now, there are some people in our society, unfortunately, who don't understand that. But when you do, that is a very, very serious thing indeed. And you know what? If we go to the life chain or we proclaim our beliefs or we say what we have to say and somebody doesn't like it, that's okay. After all, how do they treat the Lord when he said what he said when the Father sent him to the earth to save us? They brought him to the cross. And as a matter of fact, if we stand up for our faith, we're going to go to the cross as well. And in fact, if your life as a Catholic has been very, very simple, no problems whatsoever, and nobody's ever challenged you on your beliefs, you better start living them. Because you may know them, but we've got to live according to what our church teaches. As a matter of fact, more than 30 years ago, at the Second Vatican Council, in a document on life in the world today, a Latin title, Gaudium et Spes, this is what the bishop said. The split between the faith, which many profess, and their daily lives deserves to be counted among the more serious errors of our age. The split between the faith which many profess and their daily lives deserves to be counted among the more serious errors of our age. As a result, the church teaches boldly and clearly that every human being has the right to life and a certain dignity. I've never watched it, but somebody told me that there is a program on television called The West Wing. It's supposed to be a rather liberal show, I'm told. Well, one day on The West Wing, and of course they did all this in 30 minutes because they have to, they talked about the president and one of the life issues. It was the Jewish fellow in the West Wing who I think gave the church a tremendous compliment when he said, you can say what you want to about the Catholic Church, but when it comes to life, they've got their act together. The church has teached consistently from the very beginning that every human being is made in God's image and likeness. And when it talks about marriage and family or war and peace or the needs of the poor or the demands of justice for some particular group, it's in that consistent way of expressing a profound respect for all human life. I received a letter from a priest in the Diocese of Nashville, Tennessee, not too long ago. And he told me that I was an embarrassment to the church for my stand on the website and life. At first, being half Irish, I was half mad. <laughs> but as I took that to prayer, I discovered something very, very important. This was a graced opportunity. I don't know what that man read or didn't read. I don't know when he went to the seminary. So I wrote back and I said, Dear Father, thank you so very much for your kind letter. Because it gave me the opportunity to write back to you. And I said, I noticed that you are from Nashville, Tennessee. And I said, that means that we probably never met because I was in Nashville, Tennessee when I was in fourth grade and that was a long, long time ago. So I'd like to invite you to come to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to stay at my house, and we can discuss some of your ideas 
and some of my ideas. But I said, I would guess that given your uh, role as a priest, that you were very involved in the civil rights movement. And you know what? I don't think you ever thought that was politics. I'll bet that you thought that you were involved in the civil rights movement because every human being is made in God's image. And you knew that your moral teachings had to be brought to the public forum no matter what anybody else thought. And I'll bet that you didn't consider it political when you stood up for the right to life of people like Martin Luther King. I'll bet you thought that if a politician thought differently, that he could express his moral values, but you were not going to be denied yours. And that is precisely the reason why I have said what I had to say with regards to chastity and with regards to life. And he wrote me back. He said, Bishop Carlson, first of all, you're the first bishop that I've ever written to that wrote back. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> and secondly, he said, it was very kind of you to invite me to come to visit you in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, wherever that is. <laughs> and he said, thank you for sharing a very important lesson about the fact that we all need to stand up for the moral teachings of our church. I guess I was wrong. I hope that you have a very good summer, signed this individual. We have to look for every single opportunity, not as a people of anger, but as a people of great hope to proclaim and to share the life message. It was for that reason in my article, I did not talk to politicians. I talked to all of you and everybody else who is a member of the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Because we have to make sure that our conscience is formed according to the mind of the church. So that in love, with great respect for the dignity of everybody that we meet, we can share prayerfully and gently the powerful message of Jesus Christ. And we can say this prayer. May the Holy Spirit get the last word. You know what? If we all said that, the pro-life movement would move by leaps and bounds. Because when you pray that the Holy Spirit gets the last word, you are asking the Holy Spirit to get involved and do the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do. And while God can act without us, God never refuses to listen to our prayers. And we lose control. We just share what the church teaches, and then we ask the Holy Spirit to move minds and hearts. And I believe if we do that, we can make a great difference. If we understand our moral responsibility and we can clearly and articulately state the teachings and mind of the church, then there will be a change in the life movement as we know it. And the opposite, why that would be terrible. I don't have to remind you how a baby is aborted. Some are burned by a solution that the doctor injects into the mother's womb. And others are cut apart while still alive by an instrument that a person who has taken the Hippocratic Oath to preserve life is using to destroy life. And others have their entire little body removed and then a blunt instrument put into the back of the skull and the brains removed. 
Let me share with you what the judge in San Francisco said on page 37 of the decision stating the partial birth abortion, the law which the Congress passed and the President signed, was illegal. Page 37. It's therapeutic for the mother perhaps to speak to the child once it's been taken from the womb except for the head, or to touch it, or to caress it, perhaps even to baptize it, and then to have the doctor stick the blunt instrument into the head and remove the brains. That person was a judge that was approved by the Senate of the United States. That person has an awesome responsibility when that judge goes before the supreme judge, Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, turn to page 37 of that judge's decision. What a compassionate, understanding, thoroughly appreciative human being that judge is. They could hold it, caress it, and then have the brain sucked out. That is absolutely sick, and as a measure of the culture of death, which impacts our society today and impacts uh, a fair number of people in the judiciary and in the media. The church therefore states, to perform an abortion and those who cooperate willingly in the action, if fully aware of the grave evil, cut themselves off from the church, separate themselves from God's grace, and this has been the constant teaching of the Catholic Church. At the same time, the Catholic Church is the one Christian body today who reaches out to all the victims of abortion. The women, the men, and the family. I had a young lady come to see me from a town not too far from here to tell me that her mother, an outstanding Catholic woman in their particular parish community, made arrangements for her to go to Omaha so that she could have an abortion so that there would be no, I'll quote the mother, inconvenience for the family. After all, your father has a position to be taken care of. And so that mother saw to the abortion of her teenage daughter. That is cooperating willingly in a grave evil, and that mother cut herself off from God's grace and from everlasting life. And then left the daughter, still in high school by the way, to deal with the wound that had been created. It was the church that that young lady went to. Because the same church that talks about abortion is the church that reaches out in compassion to care for those women who have been lied to and have gone through that procedure. It's also our diocese. I received a letter from an attorney. Obviously, he must have been a very successful attorney. The stationery was beautiful. <laughs> Just the other day, and he said uh, in so many words that I better get my act together, and what I was saying was a scandal. After all, who's taking care of these poor women? I wrote back and sent him a pamphlet from the Mother Teresa Fund explaining what we do in the Diocese of Sioux Falls. He wrote back and said, Oh, that's really good. I'm proud of you. I'm sending another letter back and saying, now I want a donation. This letter, the first one I sent you cost me five bucks, plus 37 cents for the stamp. 
The second one is costing me this, the same, and I want at least $10.73 to cover the costs of your correspondence. And judging by your stationery, I think you can afford it. <laughs> and of course, that'll go into the Mother Teresa Fund. But the church, the one that speaks clearly about what abortion is, is also the one who's willing to reach out to somebody who's been lied to by organizations like Planned Parenthood and others uh, that badly misinform people today. One of the things that we did a couple years ago, and we'll do again this fall in our Catholic schools, is we send all of the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th graders uh, articles which are age-appropriate so that they know what abortion is. After all, they've never lived except in a society in which abortion has been the law of the land. It's amazing, their editorials. It's not surprising that young people today are more pro-life than their parents were. Once they see the facts, once they have a time to reflect on it, they reject what God has rejected since the beginning of time, and that is the killing of innocent human beings. The bishops, when they met in Denver, focused on the judicial system. It's corrupt, and it's evil when it comes to abortion. If there's anybody who's a member of that system here, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. I stand by those words. I shared with you what the judge said out in San Francisco. Not only that, um, it's not enough to say I'm personally opposed to abortion, but that's like saying I'm personally opposed to murder, but it's okay if you murder your child. That doesn't wash either. And for those people who want to silence us by saying you can't legislate morality, guess what? Every single law has some moral principle attached to it. Tell me one that doesn't. Running a stop sign, somebody said to me one time, I said, no, you don't run a stop sign because that keeps people alive. That's an important moral principle. Oh, they said. Every single law has a moral principle attached to it. You can't legislate morality, then don't run for public office. Because if you do, that's what you got to do. And if you believe that life begins at conception and you help legislate a law that says that you can murder life, that is a very serious act for anybody to do. One of the things that um, the Holy Father has written about, and that's in paragraph 73 of the Gospel of Life. And by the way, if you haven't read it, you should. In fact, I don't think you can be pro-life until you've read it because he presents the message so beautifully that it is a grave and clear obligation of every Catholic to oppose any law that attacks human life. This is not an endorsement of one political party or another. Quite frankly, there are politicians on both sides of the aisle who are pro-life, and there are politicians on both sides of the aisle who are not pro-life. Um, I think there was an article on the front page of the same newspaper in which I wrote my article that talked about a group that has formed Democrats for life. And I know Republicans who are very strong for life, and I know a few who aren't. So it's not a political thing. And I think that's a very, very important thing that we're aware of. But rather, today, we are facing an enormous and dramatic clash between good and evil, death and life, and the culture of death. It even happens in our rural parishes. 
the other day I was out in a parish. In 1999, this parish had 15 children in it. Today, this parish has less than six. And they were all mad at me. That's why I was there, because their parish was going to close. And I said, well, there are three things that are going on in small parish communities. And I said, and if I'm wrong, you just let me know. I said, first of all, I said, where there used to be eight farms, there are now two. Every time seven farm families move off the land, one, town on Main, one store on Main Street closes. And looking at this crowd, and you tend to be rather young, most of you are practicing birth control and not having any children. And I said, those are the three reasons why I'm here to close your parish. <coughs> Nobody disputed any of the facts. But you see, when we live in a society where everyone who's married thinks they can freely practice birth control, and they haven't taken the time to form their conscience according to the mind of the church, then why would we think that anything that we say about life is moral? It's got to be political. That's a, one of the issues that we have to address. A couple of years ago, we had the great scandal of the priests, and people weighed in on that hot and heavy. But let me tell you what the scandal is. It's the scandal of the body of Christ. If marriage is not strong, priesthood is not strong. And if religious life is not strong, marriage and priesthood aren't going to be strong. And we've got to look at each aspect of the mystical body of Christ, and we've all got a lot of work to do. We've got to make sure that the commitment to religious life is deep and rich. And we've got to make sure that priests are chaste and faithful to their vows. And we've got to make sure that people who are in marriage are faithful to their religious vows too, including being open to life. And I would guess some of you don't like to hear it. But you know what? Sometimes the truth hurts. I'm tired of people going to church and coming home with feel-good religion. We've got to deal with the issues that exist, and then we've got to make the changes that we've got to make. And I don't think that makes us popular, but it does build up saints. And that's what this is really all about. When somebody called and said that we wanted to, uh, they wanted to interview me on my political statement about politicians going to communion, I said, I haven't made one. They said, well, that article in the bishop's I said, no, that wasn't about politicians not going to communion. I said, I'm talking about 125,000 Catholics not going to communion if they don't form their conscience according to the mind of the church. I said, I can't waste my time on some politician from Massachusetts who's not even going to come here. I said, I got too many Catholics to deal with. Oh, they said, so this isn't about Senator Kerry not going to communion. I said, I said, that's not my issue. I'm told he's not even going to visit the state of South Dakota, so why would I be concerned about him going to communion in Sioux Falls? But I said, I am concerned about the 125,000 Catholics who go to communion almost every Sunday, most of them without taking the time to form their conscience according to the teachings of the church. There used to be an old saying, I come from an uh, Irish Catholic family. It's easy to be born a Catholic and it's easy to die one, but you don't want to spend too much time trying to live it in between. Well, that's what the Irish said. Of course, the Irish also loved to feel guilty. So, of course, they would say something like that. <laughs> but the truth is it is. If you're going to live according to the mind of the church, you're going to be forced to grow. I'm forced to grow every single day. I wasn't the same bishop that came here 10 years ago. And heaven help me if I'm the same bishop a year from now. We have to change every single day. I've told this to a lot of you. 
I say two prayers every day. Jesus, I love you. Help me to love you more. And you know what? If you, if you ask him to help you love him more, he's going to have you do more. Second thing, I said, Lord, may all my decisions be made under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If you want your decisions made under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, sometimes you can't do what you want. How do I know that? Because sometimes I want to do things and the Holy Spirit says I shouldn't. And if you offer that prayer, it'll do the same thing for you. Some things that you want to do, you'll say you shouldn't. But the one thing is clear is that when it comes to abortion or euthanasia, these are the fundamental life issues. Lots of things flow from them. But these are basic. If we get this straight, we'll get everything else straight. Why is it a problem? Because of the tension between working for the common good and kind of an excessive individualism that touches so many of us. As a matter of fact, I was talking to a group of farmers one time and I said, you know, if you're going to be a farmer in the state of South Dakota, you have to be a rugged individualist. If you weren't a rugged individualist, you're a tree hugger out in Oregon because you couldn't make it here in the prairie. To be a successful farmer, you've got to be a rugged individualist. And that's a good thing. But when it comes to faith, you also have to be somebody who's totally focused like the Good Samaritan on the common good. Because when we are, lots of things that we might feel inclined to do, we don't do for the common good. You know, one of the reasons why I don't sin, and hopefully one of the reasons why you don't sin, is because we have people who look up to us, and we have people for whom we are responsible for, and we have people for whom we know we have to help be better. And that's not a bad thing if we feel that way. It's a low motive, but God can raise it. Pours his grace and love into our hearts, and all of a sudden, we get it right what God really intends for us to do. He intends to make us saints. It's the only reason why I'm your bishop. I care about nothing else. But once that's your focus, it makes it very, very easy to be your bishop. Because I can say to you what it takes to be a saint. To be pro-life, you've got to read the Gospel of Life and Very Taught to Splendor, doctrinal notes from the congregation, and what the American bishops have said. But more importantly than that, you've got to live it, speak it, and proclaim it. And if you do, you'll be well on your way to becoming a saint. You look up here and you say, I don't see any halo around his head right now. There isn't one, but wouldn't it be great if someday there was? And for you as well. That's why this is such an important issue. Because of some election, hardly. Because of some political party or another, never. But because this is what God teaches. And this is what God said in the very first words of the Bible. I made them male and female, and I created them in my own image. Thank you very much. Bishop is going to stick around for a little while and answer some questions in public, so if anybody has any questions, just wait for Don, who has the microphone, to get to you so that your question can get on the tape. Anybody? Any question? I should just say this. Uh, while he's going there, 
you know, you sit at home sometimes, and you read the newspaper, you hear about something I'm doing, and you say, if I ever get that guy, I'm going to tell him, this is your opportunity. <laughs> but also, I realize that some of you are like my mother. You would never say anything in public. But she always has plenty to say in private. So when we're done with the public questions, if anybody has any private questions, I'll give you 10 minutes of my mother's time, because she always says I should do that. Uh, Bishop, what does the church teach us on how we should vote when one candidate is pro-abortion all the way and the other candidate is like <clears throat> pro-life and then he has the exceptions for the rape, life, uh, rape, incest, and life of the mother. And um, also, I, uh, I wondered if you could explain the difference between material cooperation and formal cooperation. Um, I'll repeat the second part first. Can I explain the difference between formal cooperation and material cooperation? Formal cooperation would obviously be the doctor who performs the abortion, the medical team, if they don't use the, uh, the out that conscience might provide for them, the mother who drives her daughter to the abortion uh, clinic. That would be an example of formal cooperation. Material cooperation um, would uh, perhaps be the person who voted for somebody who um, was influential in passing a pro-abortion law, uh, somebody who um, maybe supported Planned Parenthood because they liked what they do for uh, teen sex. They're kind of big on Ask Alice website that kind of thing, that would be material cooperation, not immediately directing. The second part of the question was, what do you do if one person is totally pro-abortion and the other person is pro-abortion to a certain degree? The Holy Father said this, and he actually directed it towards politicians, and it's a very important thing. He said politicians can work for something which is incremental. In other words, maybe they outlaw abortions at a, in a certain, like in the military, or maybe they make sure that there aren't abortions uh, with the exception of rape and incest or something like that. What the church teaches is if you have two candidates, and let's say they're both abortion, both pro-abortion, but one, for, you have some uh, proportional reason, and I'll give you an example in just a second, then you could vote for that person who is perhaps partially pro-abortion if such a thing exists. Let me give you an example. And of course, if you know from my talk, that's what Colonel Ratzinger was referred to. Um, senator Santorum is perhaps the most pro-life senator in the Senate. Interestingly, he is supporting Alan Specter, who's pro-abortion, over another Republican in the primary, I mean, that's over now, but he did, who was pro-life. Uh, that was quite startling. And his reason was, while it's true he's pro-abortion, he would never vote against the president. And we know that he will vote for all of the president's um, judge nominations. Therefore, he felt that that was a, a reason why he could support that person. That would be one example. So he's not voting, he's not helping his campaign because he's pro-abortion, but because actually he thinks by getting him in there, he would vote for pro-life judges. And, and he said, 
and I don't know the facts of this because I'm not from that state, that the person who was pro-life had no chance of ever getting the nomination. So that would be an example. Because I really struggle with what Cardinal Rossinger said. That was hard for me to understand. Any other questions? Yes, sir. We just have to wait till the microphone gets there. Does the church uh, have the power to excommunicate a candidate who is Catholic and running for president and supports abortion? And if so, um, and the church does not do that, is the church being disingenuous by telling Catholics not to go to communion if they vote for that candidate and yet not ex excommunicating the candidate? Uh, first of all, the only person who could excommunicate a particular candidate would be the person, would be the bishop from whose diocese that person came. Only rarely would the Holy See excommunicate somebody. In Europe, where there are a number of pro-abortion premiers and whatever they call them over there, uh, no bishop has ever excommunicated the politician. In this country, the only politician that I ever, or the only public excommunication that I'm aware of, and there may be others but I'm not aware of, was when Archbishop Rummel in New Orleans excommunicated somebody because they limited access of Catholic schools to black children. Now, when it comes to excommunication, this is something that the church only does rarely. Um, you always try to find a way. I'll give you an example. In the confessional, if somebody confesses a mortal sin and they says, but I don't think it's a sin, and I actually had a situation not dissimilar from that one time, years and years ago, I said to the individual, well, if God thought it was a sin, would you think it's a sin? And they said, well, I guess if God thinks it's a sin, I think it's a sin, but I don't think it's, I said, stop. I said, just answer my question. If God thinks it's a sin, do you think this is a sin and you'll try not to do it again? Well, all right, he said, if God thinks this is a sin, I won't do it again. I said, that's good, and I gave him absolution. In other words, you try to work to bring the person back to the church. The second level is interdict. The only example I know is when John Ireland interdict everybody in a um, small town south of Minneapolis, for whatever reason, I, can't even, I don't even remember. But what they said is that community was so unfaithful, this was all parish, that they could not have mass for a certain period of time. And then, of course, the interdict was lifted. Uh, I've never done that. And then only if the person were to state the fact, go against the church teaching, and everything else failed, as a last resort, the church could excommunicate. But it's a power that throughout history the church has used rarely. Um, but yes, it can. The, and since it's a disciplinary law, you only use a disciplinary law when the circumstances have been created exactly. You never do it. You never do a disciplinary law liberally. Can I have a follow-up question? In, a, in an issue that's as important as life, though, and considering that a candidate may become president who will influence the laws, obviously, signing laws that will be pro-abortion, isn't that the 
the type of circumstance that would warrant excommunication? Obviously, um, the bishop of that individual's diocese, whoever was elected president, if they were Catholic, would have to make that decision. Um, again, luckily, I don't have to make the decision, and I only have to work with 125,000 Catholics in this diocese. Having said that, I do not believe that you can allow anyone, doesn't matter who their position is or what they do, to uh, live in public sin without bringing to their attention in the most serious way. Whether excommunication is the wisest path to follow, that would only be determined, I think, after some wise counsel. But I agree with you, you cannot just ignore it. Mr. Weber over here. Why aren't we hearing from the pulpit how serious it is to vote for a candidate that's pro-abortion? Uh, the question was, why aren't we hearing from the pulpit? Um, the only reason I could think of is that they thought my article was so good that they didn't need to repeat it. <laughs> But uh, I can tell you that I have talked to the priest, and Father Martin's here, he could testify to this. And I share with them the importance that they must put on conscience formation. Now, that's not to say that they won't, but um, I felt that I had to show them the way. And I, I don't know why there is that timidity. Um, you know. Catholic priests are in a unique position. They can't be fired for what they say from the pulpit, especially if it's the teachings of the church. So why they don't have the courage, I don't know. Some do. I think of uh, Father Brian Simon, who has been quite clear and started that March for Peace you know, on, on, uh, in January, and others who have been quite courageous in what they've said. So some do. And your, your, your pastors in Del Rapids have. So some do. But I told them all that they should. I think you got to tell them again. <laughs> <laughs> now you know why I have gray hair. <laughs> yes. Um, do you have any advice on... Like, I have a true family that religion and politics is not discussed. <laughs> so do you have any advice on how to, how to enter into that kind of a conversation and how to maybe engage people into wanna talking about that? Because anytime it's brought up, there's always a way that some member of the family will, will get out of it. So do you have a way to, like, en to engage people in that? And, First of all, I understand the kind of family you come from because uh, I came home from the seminary after my first semester. This was a long, long time ago. And I had a sister who was a senior in high school at the time. And I can't remember what we were talking about, but I do remember what she said to me. With her hands on her hips, she looked at me and she said, do not preach to me. <laughs> and so uh, I understand the challenge within a family. But I, I think there's a couple ways that you can do it. First of all, 
if they live out of town, you can write them a note. And you can talk one of those paragraphs of how important you think the election is. And you're real concerned that we elect somebody who, you know, whatever, who is uh, concerned for life and the dignity of each human being. And how you were just at a talk that talked about that and its impact. And I'm sure this is a great concern to you as well. Uh, secondly, and more importantly, uh, if we want to make sure that um, what happens is for uh, the good of life, is we pray that the Holy Spirit gets the last word. That's a very powerful prayer. Most of us think that we have to do it, and we only get one vote. But the Holy Spirit, he, he trumps an entire nation and a whole world. And I would say that if you have people that, that you feel have to be talked to, or that you say that prayer, may the Holy Spirit get the last word, that the sacredness of life is protected. And imagine what would happen if 125,000 people were saying that prayer. I was talking to a person not too long ago who was filled with anger over an issue. And I said, you know what? I said, you're going about it the wrong way. I said, I'm going to show you a way that where you can let go of your anger and you can improve the situation. That person started saying that prayer and within a week. Something happened which was absolutely miraculous. And the Holy Spirit got the last word. In fact, I was just sharing with a number of priests this morning how powerful and how quickly the Holy Spirit moved in that case. But I think there are ways, you know, to engage it directly is sometimes too threatening, especially to relatives. Uh, I'm Jim Kersey from uh, Christ King Parish. And um, uh, recently we had the trucks in Sioux Falls with the, the pictures and um, I'd heard a comment from somebody that uh, uh, you had been uh, silent on that or had some way, in some way, had distanced yourself from that. I don't know that, whether that was true or not, and I, I don't have any feeling about it one way or the other. I just wanted to know if you had any comment on that. Um, first of all, the trucks came without uh, contacting us ahead of time. And at the last minute, just before their arrival, uh, they said, well, do you want to support this? I never support anything unless I've carefully studied all of the people who are involved and what exactly the, the um, thing is about. But I must tell you, I've never used shock as my approach. So had I been contacted earlier, I wasn't, but had I been contacted earlier, I probably would not have been supportive of that. Um, for instance, uh, and you can see that in some of the letters the editor, you have young children, they aren't prepared to see something like that or understand it. I would, I would, never, I would never do it that way. But as a matter of fact, I was silent because they didn't ask me. But had they asked me, I, I would have said no. I would not have supported it. I, I think you're saying that uh, if a candidate for public office has many good qualities, uh, is very compassionate, uh, has voted um, on the right way on all the issues, let's say, that the church supports except abortion, and that candidate is pro-abortion, uh, that even though the candidate may be uh, a good candidate in other respects, 
that a Catholic, if the Catholic is going to be going to practice his or her faith, cannot vote for that candidate. That's the first question. And secondly, then, if the pers if a, a voter, for whatever reason, couldn't vote for the other candidate too, uh, then are you saying that the voter should not vote at all in that particular race? The first question was, am I saying that if a candidate is right in all of the Catholic issues, including pro-life? Everything but pro-life. Oh, but pro-life. Then you can't vote for that person. Right. And that the other candidate is what? Let's say the other candidate is pro-life, but for whatever reason, the voter can't vote for that, that other candidate either. Well, first of all, I'm not saying anything. I'm saying what the church teaches. And what the church would teach is, is that life is the fundamental and most important issue. For instance, you can be a Catholic and have a difference of opinion with me over the death penalty. Pope has said so. Uh, you can be a Catholic and you can feel that people should do what they can for, for um, the handicapped. And one person can do this much, one could, person could do that much. I think they should be very involved. But uh, you can be a Catholic and you can have difference of opinion over war and peace. Just war theory, whatever a person follows. But as a Catholic, we have an absolute teaching on abortion and euthanasia. It is the issue. If a candidate is pro-life and against euthanasia, and then a Catholic in good conscience can vote for that person. Now, if somebody is not pro-life, they're pro-abortion, Cardinal Ratzinger says that for a proportionate reason, when they have a rightly uh, developed conscience, there could be some reason which would allow that Catholic to vote for that individual. And therefore, that's the teaching of the church. I don't know how helpful that is, but that is the teaching of the church. Um, and there could be a person who votes for somebody for other reasons which are most important. Um, I don't think I would ever suggest to somebody that they would not vote at all. But there have been elections where I've voted for a whole variety of people uh, on both sides of the aisle, usually. And there was something that I couldn't vote for. Sometimes it's because, you know, you get down to some election and you don't know either person. Even though you thought you were well informed, I won't vote for somebody unless I know. Um, but I would never recommend anybody not to vote. But, you know, and it's, it's a hard thing. Casting a vote is one of the greatest freedoms that we have in this country. But it, it demands that we go into that election booth with a well-formed conscience. And then we look at it, you know, all of the things that are there. I don't think we can ever say it's crystal clear. You know, it takes great prayer. I, I never go to vote without praying first and spending a lot of time in prayer. I just have a, a comment on the uh, uh, the thinking process that we go through uh, to make these decisions, and and I've I've voted on the pro-life side of things um, since at least 1972, and that's really been the only issue 
that I have in good conscience been able to vote on, even though there were things that the other candidate on the other side of, of the issue was saying that really supported me in terms of my own financial condition and, and so forth. And after a while, after all these years of voting on this, you know, you get tired of, uh, I get the feeling sometimes I'm being manipulated by my own side because the only time we, we hear anything from the pro-life side is when it's voting time. And then in between elections, um, I don't see um, the candidates making that their primary issue in their, in their office. And so you, you, get, you get to the point where sometimes you think it doesn't make any difference uh, that you can, um, I'll say it, you can vote for all the Republicans in the universe, let alone the world, and we're still going to have abortion. And so, uh, you know, how do we deal with that? I guess I'm just, I don't have an answer, but. You know, one of the, uh, the, the statement was that this man said that he has voted for pro-life candidates since 1972, and sometimes he thinks he's being taken advantage of and very little is happening. Um, I only came to South Dakota now 11 years ago. And one of the things that I have found quite edifying is both the Democrats and the Republicans who are pro-life state legislators in this state, who do every session when they get together for 60 weeks, or however many it is, it's not very many, it's 60 days, not very many weeks, who do tremendous pro-life things. It's one of the reasons I think that keeps South Dakota as pro-life as it is. I find at that level much is happening for the pro-life cause. Uh, I am not as privy to the national level. And I also share sometimes your um, impatience with some people who claim to be pro-life and do little once they're elected. But I do know that at the state level, in this state, I can't talk about any other state, we've got Democrats and Republicans who are very, very pro-life and who are very, very active. Um, and I've come to know that through Mars efforts and Father Jim Mason and now Travis and Kelly Benson, uh, the work that's done at that level. At the national level, um, I was one of those people in 1973 who thought that the political solution was the only solution. Today, I would say I think we made a mistake. I think it has to be, there has to be the political solution, obviously. But right now, it's the education. And that is paying off, I believe, uh, with the number of young people who are now you know, part of the pro-life force. But I, sh I also share some of your frustration. Um, a word of encouragement for all of us. <clears throat> uh, my husband and I are, uh, work in Del Rapids in the community and the parish for, for life issues. And Father, Father Frank Pravone last week encouraged me a lot. He said twice, I heard him say, this lie won't, won't continue, and it's closer than we think, the end. And the abortion mills are shutting down because doctors, they, they can't find doctors to, to run them. So, you know, I just, that just really boosted me up a lot. 
that those comments from Father Frank Pavone and and he's been on EWTN this week every saying mass and, and these homilies have been this this message and um, so we have to hang in there. Any other questions? I don't really have a question. I'd just like to make a comment that I don't think we're ever going to stop abortion until we start teaching on humani vitae. And it's that mentality of birth control where you can separate the unitive and the procreative aspects that um, led to this mess. And so I think that, I think that some of the priests are, are afraid to talk about abortion because they haven't been talking about birth control since the Holy Father issued that encyclical. So just well, a comment. Since I said that during my talk, Connie, I obviously agree with you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I enjoyed the opportunity to be at Theology on Tap.